Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is the founder and CEO of one of the hottest companies that's out there today, really redefining our space on the whole. And I'm talking about a terrific guy. I'm so happy to have you here, Adam Singolda, founder and CEO. So welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, th- I think we're both in the city right now. Is that is that correct? Both in the city? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in my office. We are you know, in an actual, this is what an actual office looks like. I know. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, we, we've been home for so long and uh, I get, to, uh, and I moved to New Jersey, Matt, which I didn't tell you. So I was able to convince my wife that, you know, great, you know, families really move from the city to New Jersey. So I did that. And, you know, we have two years and a four-year-old kid and I, I get to come to the city twice a week, which I really appreciate, you know, indoor offices, fast internet, you know, all those good things. So, and I'm, and I'm proud. Our block was featured on the cover of the New York Post a few days ago as we're on 35th between 7th and 8th and 35th and neighboring 36th were deemed the worst blocks in Midtown. And I'm very proud that we are right in the middle of, it's not easy. It's, it's you know, some people are bad, but worst is, you know, that's the championship designation. So hopefully under our new mayor going forward, things will start to improve a little bit, but you know, as a New Yorker, it's a little bit heartbreaking. So, so it's great to have you and I much in the news uh, lately, and um, we're going to talk about what you're doing there. And it's uh, one of a number of companies that you founded, but Adam, I'd love to go back and start by talking about your seven years spent with the INSA as part of the IDF, an elite intelligence unit within the Israeli army. So many people have come out of Israel and gone on to great success in the tech space. You are one of those success stories. And there seems to be something about the rigors of that training and what it does, but you were in a particularly special elite part of the IDF. So I'd love to talk about your remembrances of that and going back to the very beginning, you spent more than the minimum there. And I'd love to start by talking about your time at the IDF. Yeah, I am and happy to go into it. So when I have mandatory service, which is three years, and I, I, I did almost seven and became an officer in that unit. In fact, just one of the things that's interesting about you know joining a mandatory service is that at a very young age, you kind of want everybody looks the same. You know, okay, we all wear just in a uniform and then it just normalizes all of us. You, you get to check your ego and emotions and a lot of those things at the door and we, you know, we're all one. And at a very young age, you kind of get that experience, which is, you know, eventually enough becomes very important, but you're only then starting to realize that. And then also the second thing, you get a lot of responsibility, you know, at a fairly young age, whichever unit you get to be in. I was very lucky and fortunate to join the encryption unit of Israel that started somewhere in the 70s. And the purpose of that place was to make sure that Israel's information stays inside. And, you know, my first project as an 18 and a half year old kid was to be part of a team that wrote to build the first protected uh, phone for the general. Uh, so we can, you know, so you can use a phone versus traditional ways of doing that. And that was so cool. You know, like you're, you're so young and you're building something that is going to be used and, and helpful for the country. And, and interestingly enough, it was by far, you know, one of the most technological units I think, you know, you can be lucky to be part of. And I met such amazing people. I thought I was okay, but then I met really smart people, you know? What's interesting is that on the other side of it, you know, seven years after, as I graduated, um, almost seven years, you kind of, when you you look back, even though it was a very tech-driven place, you take a lot of cultural uh, ingredients that define you and define organizations that you want to be part of. 
in terms of how flat can be and, you know, and how people can make mistakes and how important the mission and purpose is and how all those things working together can create value. And that's essentially, if you think about startups, it's so counterintuitive for a small team to do something that bigger companies cannot. And, and that's, that was a great lesson for me. And I feel lucky that I had this experience. Fantastic. And just to go back as you did, you begin this tenure, you're how old? 18, is that when it begins? Yeah. So you're 18 years old. It is an equalizer. Everybody sort of looks the same. Everyone's in the same position. How did you make that decision or when did you make that decision to go beyond the three years? Was it something that you would just, did they pick you? Did you pick them? How does that work? I, I, you know, as a kid, I was, you know, I was, I was a gamer and I wrote code as a young kid. I used, you know, at the time a, a popular language was uh, COBOL, which I'm sure I hope most people listening to this would not know what that is, but that's what I used to code with and some assembler and things like that, you know, in high school. And when I, when I joined the army, I was accepted to this computer science program that they kind of uh, take you for six months. And then they really try to put you through the process and equip you with a variety of different capabilities. It's called Mamram. And then at the end of it, you, you know, you can either get, you get accepted to a variety of different units. And I was uh, at that point, I, I, you know, I finished uh, with honors and I I was able to uh, get accepted to, to that unit. Funny enough, you know, I really wanted to get to that unit, but they kind of only add one spot for someone to join. And I really wanted it. And I thought I was good, but I knew there was someone better than me, at least one. But there was one guy in particular who was so smart, so advanced, so humble. His name is Alon. And when I met the guy who headed that unit and he interviewed me, I told him, look, you should know that I really want to join the unit, but I'm not the person you should get. You should get the other person. He's way better and so good. He's so good. I told him he's from the future. You've never met someone so smart. And he said, well, I mean, I, I thought you really wanted to join. I said, I do, but I can't be here and tell you I'm your guy. You should not, you should at the very least meet the person and know that I'm right. And he ended up deciding to hire both of us. So this person, you know, we both joined, I'm 18 and a half. He's an 18 and a half. I one with another. We spent, you know, all this time in that unit, kind of growing up together. And then when I started Tabula, he was my first call. I called him up and I said, I have no idea if I'll ever be able to pay you. And I've never done this before, but I believe, you know, we're, we're facing a revolution whereby an information revolution, you know, with the information will be finding us versus us finding information. And he agrees to join with very little commitment on anything that's going to happen to him. And he still is with me 14 years after. And I can tell you on June 30th, when I took the bill of public and we'll get to whatever part you want to talk about in this story, he flew in with a bunch of other you know, friends and, and people at Tabula that we've been together for more than 10 years. And he was in that room and I was thinking to myself, wow, I know this guy for more than 20 years, you know, and that is just uh, remarkable. And I still think he is amazing. So that, that's just a fun memory lane, uh, you know, thing that you took me on, Matt. Fantastic. Well, at 14 years, that, that speaks to, to both of you. So I think that's, that's an, in many ways, the ultimate compliment. And Adam, just to stay here for another second, because it's such an interesting topic. What is it about those that go through the experience that you did, be it three years, seven years, or somewhere in between, that is such a great training ground for the modern digital world? 
I think, you know, it's kind of a very good incubator wherever you are, I think, in the army. In, you know, this experience I've had, but I think other friends of mine as well. It's such a good place to uh, one, like uh, Kendrick Lamar says, you know, sit down and be humble. Because uh, you get to meet so many people from all over the country. And you really, for the first time, experience after, you've, you know, you, your parents have raised you in a certain town. You've seen a certain school system, but suddenly you meet people from the entire country that are doing what you're supposed to be doing. So this diversity aspect is really powerful and it keeps you humble because whoever you think you are coming into it, I promise you, you change. And the second thing is that it gives you this sense of, I can do this because people give you a chance, but it's a great place to get a chance because you can fail. People understand that when you're 18 and a half or 19 with zero experience in anything, you might fail. So failure is actually part of the journey. And uh, you're not being judged for it. You're being, it's, it's part of the, 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 the discussion. You know, I remember when I made many mistakes in my, in my service, you know, I was, the first time I made a big mistake, I wasn't sure what's it going to do with me. I was so young and I was debating, you know, what happens when you tell someone you made a big mistake? And I really didn't know. And then I told them I made a mistake and they said, let's, let's get everybody together and talk about it and learn from it, like a root cause. And that was the first time somebody did the root cause about a mistake I've done. So the sense of, you know, it can be done. And then the third one is that you do it in this very small team. It's a small country. It's a small service. It's small. Everything is small. But then you get this supercharged Avenger-like feel, you know, and, and, and we all grew up on, you know, in the Star Wars, on, you know, the Rebels and Avengers and Transformers. It's always the small teams that are fighting the bad people and are doing incredible things. And I love superhero stories. And I think all of those smaller things get people to graduate and say, I think I have a chance and I'm going to try even if I fail. And that is a very fundamental piece in starting anything or joining another startup because at the end of the day, the first question you have to ask yourself as an entrepreneur is, if I told you you're failing in 10 years, would you still do it? And for many people coming out of the service, I think the question is, we like it and we're going to give it a shot. And that is the gift you get, you know, whether that's a three years, four years, five years, you know, whatever time you, you were part of it. So that's why I think there's this feeling of this, this culture of try, break, and it's okay to fail. And everything is possible, even if you're a small team. It's a great story. And were you always determined to uh, come to America? When, when did that plan start to formulate for you? I really wanted to come to America. I wasn't sure, by the way, what's the best way for me to be here. Uh, I wanted to try, you know, America, it's such a big, you know, big country, such a land of opportunity. And, you know, for someone like me, I was, I think, always an entrepreneur. My dad is a musician. I grew up in the, in the spirit of art and music. And I thought America was such an amazing place to celebrate ideas uh, and attempts at, at your own journey and dream. So I really wanted to try it out. And I wasn't sure what's the best way to do it. You know, was I, should I come and meet someone? Should I, uh, should I, you know, and the problem was I didn't have an undergrad. So I thought, you know, I, I heard a rumor that if you finish HBS with honors, that if you finish your undergrad in, in honors, maybe HBS, Harvard Business School will accept you and this and this and that. And I had different ideas of how should I get to America through the school system or, and I just didn't know. And I, and eventually what I ended up doing was I started the company in Israel and I had my, you know, a visa to come in and, and be here for a little bit. And then it's funny because I moved on May 23rd, 2009. I just got my uh, citizenship about two months ago. Congratulations. Uh, which, which was a huge moment for me and my family. Obviously, I married my wife here. She's an American. I have two kids here. 
So for me, it was, uh, even though in a pandemic, you know, Matt, it kind of sucks because all you get is this small flag and nobody can be with you because it's a pandemic. Uh, so you kind of, you know, you celebrate on your own becoming an American. I wish my family could be with me, but, but still for me, as someone who always wanted to be here to become, uh, you know, a member of this country is such a special moment, especially as I feel like I, I'm building, you know, I bring Israel to America and I bring America to Israel. You know, I, I kind of, especially as I work at Tabula, we have people from all over the world. So I, I seem as, I seem as very diversified in terms of cultural access, but being here. Fantastic. And you had some early success working with tech stars. Yeah, it was, uh, well, I was, I was many an advisor. So David Tish, who was a close friend who was there kind of, you know, asked me if I, if I, you know, if I'd be willing to be like an advisor to startups and, uh, and I, and I did, it was actually an amazing operation, but I couldn't believe it. You know, it was, I think they were the first one or among the first one to really incubate startups, definitely in the East coast in New York. And it was amazing to see the show, you know, they've had at the very end of all the startups that joined small, I mean, one person, two people stand on stage and perform and raise money from amazing investors. And David sends him to be very successful investing in many other great startups and companies uh, he also invested in K-Health, which is another company I started five years ago, which I'm only on the board of as of now. But but yeah, I have earned many you know, opportunities over there over the last 10 plus years here in New York. I love New York. You know, it's it's um it's the best place to be a foreigner. You know, everybody has accent, or many of us have, you know, some sort of an accent and or some story, you know, of someone we know it's not from here. And uh, so it creates this feel that you can be anyone. But also at the same time, New York keeps you uh, humble because it doesn't matter who you are. You're just another person in the city. You can be a celebrity. You can be successful. Nobody cares. You know, you just buy your coffee and move on. I think you're, I feel the same way about New York. And, you know, as we travel around the world, we have advertising week in New York and London. And London has, you know, different mix, but similarly scores very high in diversity. Tokyo, which does not score very high in diversity. And then we're also in Sydney and Mexico City, which are somewhere in the middle. But New York, I think, are the energy of New York is fueled by people. And that you've got people here from 200 plus countries. My grandfather came here through Ellis Island, as did 15, 16 million others many years ago. And, and then there are contemporary stories like yourself. So I think uh, I share that sense of, uh, and love for New York. Adam, you've been involved in the startup ecosystem for a little over a decade. And for most of us that have never been in the engine room of a startup, you know, we don't really know what that means. You know, you only have surface knowledge from the outside looking in. Talk about the evolution of the startup ecosystem. The technology world has advanced mightily in the past 10 years. What was it like then when you first got into it? And today, 10 years later or so, what's the same and what's different? I think there's so many ways to think about this question from, from top of view, and then we can go broader. You know, when I started and the idea was to recommend uh, information to consumers, you know, in many ways, we, we built a company that's, that's sort of a Google, but in reverse, instead of expecting consumers to go to google.com and search for information, what if information was to search for us so that when you go to a website or you open an app, it says you may like, like Amazon, you know, recommending you things that you may love, but never knew existed. And that was my always vision to create this serendipity, you know, that moment of next when you just stumble upon something you love and you never knew you loved it before that very moment. 
and now, you know, you know, 14 years after we recommend to half a billion people every day and people click on Taboola and people discover something on Taboola 30 billion times a year. That was last year. So obviously a, a long journey and an exciting one. If I look at the very beginning versus now, there was a, almost a cultural shift. You know, when I started and even as I met many investors and I, and I, the pitch was as someone lands on a website, they might want to discover something from the entire web. And people weren't sure, why would I allow someone to leave my site? And that was very counterintuitive. And, and I think it was very much kind of people wanted to own the consumer and the experience. And a decade afterwards, people realized that there's so much value in diversifying the experience again to, to offer information that's relevant for the consumer, but from the entire web, because if I give you something you like, even if it's not from my site, you might come back because you enjoy that moment. And we've seen this now, you know, again, throughout this quarter, you know, the last 10 years across many platforms, you know, you go to Twitter and Twitter sends you away, but you come back, you know, you go to, you go to Facebook even, and, and they send you away and you come back. And so this, this notion of distribution of consumers all around was, was a big change. And investors at the very beginning, even they didn't, they didn't think it's going to be successful. Um, they weren't sure why would publishers want people to leave? And my answer was, well, if we do a great job, they'll come back uh, because you only have a limited time with the person in any case. So that, that, was a, that was a cultural change. I think, you know, in the, in the New York scene, definitely from an Israeli perspective, when I came in, there were only a few of us. And now I think there are hundreds of startups out of Israel here. So there's this great ecosystem of companies here and from all over the world that work together and help each other. And there are many incubators and people, they don't even ask for anything in exchange. It's a great ecosystem here in New York. Of, of helping each other and, and fighting the, fighting the fight. Um, and when I came, it was, you know, I think less mature, but it feels more mature now. You know, and I think lastly, from a funding perspective, that changed a lot as well, because to start a company, you need someone to invest, to continue to grow your company, you need someone to invest. And that changed a lot. East coast investors, international investors in startups changed completely. And, and people, uh, people, you know, were able to, to give a shot for their dream now, meaning an investor more than I, th I think back then. So I feel like almost everything changed. What didn't change is people who uh, love their ideas so much that they're willing to uh, work and, and do this for 10, 20 years, as far as it takes. It used to also take five years to kind of sell your company to the public. Then it became seven years and now it's over 10 years. So even the type of people that want to do this evolved into people that want to do something for 10 years or more versus this shorter sprint. But it's so much fun. And that whoever listens to this, and I'm sure, you know, if you're part of the Advertising Week community, you care a lot about innovation. And I think if you have a dream, there's so much opportunity to partner with others, give things a shot and, uh, and try. That's a great, great answer. So I, I want to get and really go deep on Taboola, of course, but let's first just spend a minute and talk about another company that you founded that you mentioned, K-Health. Yeah, I, so you should know, I do nothing but Taboola and I've never done anything but Taboola. I don't take equity in other companies. I, I, um, I, I meet a lot of different founders and I, I talk in different schools, and, but I don't do it for equity in exchange or any things. I, I, many people were my mentors and never asked me for anything. And I want to uh, always hope that I can do the same for anyone out there that I can be of help. And it will never be in exchange for anything. I will, uh, on, on the record here, I can tell you, I, I, don't, I do not take equity in other companies. And I hope I can help anyone who has any question, if they think I can be helpful. So, so, 
So what happened with K-Health though, that for a bunch of time, I, as I you know, I was living in New York and every time I had to go to the doctor, I felt very lonely that I have no idea what I may have. And it, it always started with me searching on Google, a symptom that I have. And it always ended with me landing on a page saying I have something terrible or I may have something terrible. And I felt like Dr. Google is horrible. You know, it always sends you to this page that says you might have something horrible. And I hated it. And when you go to the doctor, I felt so lonely because I had this fear. I had to wait for two weeks for the doctor appointment, which I lost half my hair on, on, you know, during that time. And then when you go to the doctor, the doctor who's trying to do a good job is only able to give you an advice based on what that doctor has seen. But I thought, you know, I'm probably not patient zero. I'm sure there are other people like me. So I said, what if the world was connected? that anyone in the world could share anonymously uh, experiences they've had so I, I can find and discover people like me and what they've taken. So when I go to the doctor, I'm never alone. I have tens of thousands of people like me, empowering me to know what they may have, not a page on Google. And, I, um, and I, one of my, my best friends who welcomed me when I came to New York, again, you know, in 2009, got a long block. And uh, he was at the time the co-CEO of a company called Wix, um, which is a very successful Israeli company. And then he became the CEO of a company called Vroom, which is a very successful company. And he's very successful and very humble and strong and one of the smartest people I know. And we've been friends for a long time. And, and he came to my house and we sat in the balcony and I told him, you know, I think there's a way to give a billion people a new healthcare system uh, for free. And on top of that, build a business model that connects them with the with the system, with doctors and others. And he went back home and we, we, we met again. We started brainstorming around it. And we realized that he had similar experiences like I did that were very personal to him. And we actually just experienced very similar things. And we decided to start K-Health. And he was the CEO and co-founder and I was just a co-founder, a board member. And we raised money and we, started, we got going. And ever since, you know, it's been five years in November. And they're doing really well. They have uh, over 5 million Americans using this. You know, almost a million people a month follow up with K-Health, which is a machine talking to you about symptoms they have. People are connected to each other. They go to the doctor. It's, it's a very interesting, in many ways, revolution because you impact people's lives. And I learned from Alon, you know, as he is the CEO of K-Health, of different ways, you know, you can run a company that's very successful. So that's, for me, a great experience. And, uh, and he's amazing. And, uh, and if so, you know, that's fun. Great, great success story. So I want to go deep and get into Taboola with you, and I want to hear the origin story. But before we go there, Adam, one of the things that strikes me is the emphasis that you and your Taboola team put on what is arguably the most important issue facing our industry right now, and that's trust. And I'd love to get sort of the origin story but also hone in on where that commitment and passion and focus for the business around trust comes from. I'm guessing that comes from you, but let's hear the origin story and let's talk about the evolution of Taboola and that absolute anchoring notion that you have for everything you do around trust. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so Taboola is my first job. I started Taboola as I, you know, I was in my parents' home uh, after the army, I was living there. You don't make, you don't make a lot of money in the army, so you kind of you kind of living with your parents. You know that's that's just 
That, that's what's happening. And that I had this TV in my room and I couldn't find anything to watch on television. And I thought I should not be looking for TV shows. TV shows should be looking for me. And I did what, you know, every good, you know, boy does when he has a huge problem. I went to my mom and I told her, you know, the world is going to change and the future will be like Google in reverse and all those things. And she said, you know, son, we're very close. We're good friends. She said, son, what the hell are you talking about? And stop drinking what you're drinking. That was kind of my feedback, her feedback. And, uh, but she was kind enough to introduce me to this investor. And, uh, and she said, I'm not, I don't know him well, but I know he's investing in startups. Uh, and his daughter has a event, which is, a, you know, if you're Jewish or if you're familiar with that, it's a big event for, for families when their daughter becomes 12 and she becomes a lady. So I was invited, she invited me to the bat mitzvah of this guy's daughter. And I was thinking to myself, when would be a good time to go and pitch him on my tabula idea, a guy I never met before. And I figured, you know, if the invitation was for 7 p.m., I wait a few hours and around 10 p.m., you know, after a few drinks and dances, he'll be open-minded. So I went to him at 10 p.m. and I told him, um, his name was Danny, is Danny. I told him, Danny, you know, the, the future is going to be completely different and there's a revolution coming and, you know, the world, there's so much information and we need something that's going to personalize all this information for us. So we know what to do next. And his response was, well, who invited you to my daughter event? And I said, my mom. I said, who's your mom? I told him my mom's name. He said, and I, I could see you. I'm not sure he knew who she was either, but it was very kind to invite me to his house. And, you know, there's a story there too, which I'm not, we don't have all the time, but there was a fun story of how I pitched him in his house. I've never had a job. I never pitched an investor. I never had a deck. I didn't know what a deck was at the time. Uh, when someone emailed me about a deck, I wrote, what is it? And, uh, but it was kind enough to invest a little bit in me. He told me he thinks I, he think I will fail, but he, we will enjoy the ride. And, uh, and we became um, best, best friends on multiple fronts and, you know, across this journey. And, and that was the very beginning. The first five years were horrendous in terms of we couldn't make it work. Nothing, nothing worked. I mean, I almost shut down three times no revenue, sell cycles with nine months, eight months, a year. It was very depressing, but I had so much fun because I, I work with Alon and others that I really looked up to. And I think in many ways, because it was my first job and first startup, I was also so naive in thinking that this must be the way startups usually go. You start a company and for the first five years, you make no revenue. That's what I thought was normal. I didn't know otherwise. If I was experienced, I would probably shut down my business a thousand times. You know, uh, but I wasn't, I was, I was really naive in thinking, this is the way you do it. You push forward, you know, you do the work. And then only in 2012 was when we started to grow from hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, which to me was bananas. I can't explain to you what to me was hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue. I couldn't imagine a company can be so big. And then in 2014, we crossed two years after we crossed the $20 million in revenue. So it was growing so fast. Every day we celebrated something, another partner, another you know, record, another hire, another country. It was amazing early days. And in many ways, the first five years of Tabula that were very tough kind of defined our culture of this um, never bash competitors, uh, humble, transparent, passionate, empathetic towards your employees, your community. And it's those early days of, that I kind of helped us navigate ourselves into now, you know, where it's, you know, our guidance for 2022 is $1.698 billion. So around $1.7 billion in revenue next year, that's our guidance. 
and we're still the same. You know, we're still we're still having a good time. Most of my management has been together for the past ten years, so we all remember what it's like when we all were together in Tabula into what it is now. And go back to that notion of trust. Where does that come from? Yeah, sorry, I missed that part. So, so the trust thing became a bigger part of our identity because as we started to get traction and growth, we realized that when you recommend things to consumer, you, you need to have a very strong opinion about what is recommendable, what should not be recommendable. Now, we were a private company. You, know, you can make your own opinion about what you want and what you think is not correct. And we, so we started this team that was kind of church and state that uh, was called Tabula Protect. And, um, and the point was, let's write, and that was, I think, five years ago or six years ago. And we said, you know, we should, let's write a policy. We'll publish it. So everybody knows what we think is right and what we think is wrong. Let's partner and talk to other companies in our space. Let's talk to journalists. Let's talk to a variety of smart companies around us so we can draft an initial draft of what is not okay. And let's keep it alive. And we decided that because... Things like hate speech, fake news, you know, hate, things that are not, it's, it wasn't about quality. It was about hurting people. We realized that we just don't want to be in the business of hurting people. And, and there's a huge distinction. You might like, you know, Matt, you might say, oh, I love Bastard in Paradise. That's a fun content for me to watch with my wife at the end of the day. I don't know if you do. I'm just saying uh, there's no harm in that, you know, it's not exactly, you know, the most perhaps serious documentary, but it's a fun thing to watch, you know, and that's completely fine. It's your choice. You can do it. So that's quality. And then there's a whole world of how do you categorize pieces of content, but none of this will hurt anyone. Then you get into a world of, I may tell you, especially as an example on a, on a back of a pandemic, that if you buy this mask, you will not have COVID. Nobody can prove that. We cannot recommend that. And that's a serious healthcare issue. So we, we, we started basically saying fake news, hate speech, and all those things. These are problems that were created by people. And the only way to protect the open web and journalism is to have people solve it, not machines. So we made a very, very big decision to review 100% of ads until before they go live against that policy. So people know if it's not accepted, why it's not accepted. So we're always consistent. I never want Tabula to be in a place where someone has to get involved to review something specific. It has to be something that's church and state. It's done the way it's done all the time, consistency. And uh, you know, years after it became such a big part of Tabula as this team grew to over 50 people, 50 people full-time job doing God's work, you know, reviewing the internet. Half a million pages a week are being reviewed by humans to make sure that the Tabula network and we serve you know bbc cnbc i mean amazing brands we want to make sure that they have quality experience and the consumers have quality experience that are safe so i see tabula as kind of like the robin hood of the open web in terms of not only driving growth to publishers and journalists but also making sure the internet is safe for us for our kids and for anyone in internet. it's a great story so as you've evolved for marketers you've got sort of a confluence of awareness, lead gen, and then driving conversions. And that's your sweet spot. But I'd love to go a little deeper on what you just said, Adam, because I think it's so interesting. You as the founder and leader made a commitment uh, and you put resource against that commitment. Is it your view 
looking at some of the larger players in our world where they are caught in the crosshairs around trust, that it is a solvable problem if you're willing to devote enough resource to it, or are some things that are just so big? And let's, you know, let's talk about Facebook and YouTube as right. enormous platforms with enormous amounts of content being loaded, you know, by the second. Is it something that you can definitively tackle and solve? Or, you know, are there some that are just so big and there's so much out there, it's almost an impossible problem? I think it's possible. I um I think it starts again going back to being humble by admitting that there are many things you don't know and that are changing fast and 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 perhaps machines can solve everything. Um, I also think that you need a lot of empathy as you grow to people around you. So you remember anyone that was there for you when you were smaller and also all of those who build the user experience that you enjoy and monetize. So an empathy is a word that's always hard for people to understand what exactly it means, but it's but it's, it's like the famous judge who said, you know, it's porn when you see it. You know, empathy is that experience when you have, when you see someone who needs help or when you make decisions that affect someone else. And I think a lot of those, a lot of times those companies become big and at times too big. And they lose some empathy on the way up. And if they had more empathy, I think, you know, they would have made decisions that would be more friendly to their you know, to their partners and communities and eventually friendly for consumers. If I was Facebook, I would probably hire 2 million people in America to review my feed. Would it be costly? Yes. But you would be creating millions of jobs. All of them would have had the Facebook email and you would make an amazing impact on humanity, which I actually think Facebook is already doing and they can do even more. It's, it's this, um, you know, it's like Spider-Man with so much responsibility, you know, you have to be responsible. So much power, response, you, you, there's a lot of responsibility. And I think that they can make a, an amazing impact, but they, make, they have to relate to the problem in a way that eventually, you know, we're talking about solutions, but I think it's not, it starts with realizing um, the effect they have on people around them and their community and publisher partners. And I remember when Facebook launched Instant Article a few years ago, and it was the, this the idea was to host publishers' content on Facebook so people never leave Facebook. And on paper, it was a good user experience because it was faster for the person. But then by mistake, they killed publishers uh, who, who, who stopped getting traffic. And to me, that was... You know, lack of empathy. By the way, they change a lot since, and I think they're getting better all the time. But it was there's some lack of empathy there about what happens to journalism and the open web when you stop sending people to it. What happens to the web and internet people use and love that is important because we need people to get guidance from from publishers about what's important and who can hurt them. And there's a reason why journalism exists. So to me, that was just an example to something that translates into lack of empathy. So I do think that. It's possible. I think they can do it. They have the most amazing, smartest people on earth. They're financially successful. And I think it starts with empathy and kind of listen to what's around them and eventually come up with a solution. I think it can be done. Interesting stuff and no more interesting area, I think, or timely or topical. So you mentioned something earlier and it just came up again, talking about the importance of journalism. And we have watched the biggest players in journalism, in print in particular, get weaker over the course of the last 10 years. 
do you worry about the future of long-form journalism, of investigative journalism? A lot of folks, The Guardian, The New York Times have moved from an advertiser-based model to a subscription-based model and had some success doing that. But do you worry for our world about a weakened press and that those institutions who keep us all safe and protect us and uncover things that need uncovering have gotten a lot weaker the last decade? So I I think, you know, uh, if it's a pushback, I'll tell you what I, what I think you're right and, and maybe less. One, I think we have seen you're right. Uh, some, some get weaker. I think actually what happened was weak became weaker and strong became stronger. And, and the distinction was uh, those who accept a change faster earlier on uh, were able to ad- adopt and reinvent themselves as a digital company, reinvent themselves um, as a mobile company. And over the last few years, reinvent yourself as a subscription company, data company, e-commerce company, video company, podcast company. Uh, so those who said, we want to be a step ahead of the game. We accept mistakes. We're going to try different startups, big and small. We'll hire different people from different industries uh, so we can kind of, you know, growth initiative. Those actually became stronger. I think we're seeing some incredible businesses. I mean, Business Insider is super successful, right? You see many great examples of publishers who have adopted and changed all the time. And those have seen success on multiple fronts. And those who are pushing back or those who put too much uh, of their future on wall garden platforms, those have suffered, I think, more, more damage. So that, that, that doesn't mean you know, that we don't have great publishers in journalism. I think, in fact, I'm very optimistic. I think what I'm seeing around is many great publishers, some are digitally born, some have re- reinvented themselves. I see consolidation, I see investment, I see private equity, I see like a lo- the whole, there's a whole new slew of business models that are taking place. I also see companies like Apple who are saying services for Apple is a big deal. One of the most you know, impressive executives, Eddie Q, is running that. And then we're seeing news being integrated into Apple. So Apple believes that the open web and journalism should be on every device. Now, let me tell you, Apple is a very successful company. So I think we're seeing this, you know, it's a crystal ball into perhaps what everybody will do one day. I think we'll see, and that's my prediction. I think we'll see content that is relevant locally or national, vertical, magazines, different formats, audio, video. We'll see getting integrated across everything around us. Apple was one of the first ones. I think we'll see every Android device coming with news inside of it. Every TV with connected TV. My car has a Spotify integration. Why don't I have Taboo integration? Why can't I click a button and listen to Advertising Week? That's horrible. I should be able to listen to this podcast in my car easily. You know, and so I think over time we'll see news everywhere. And that's going to be a huge source of growth for the open web and journalism. I believe that. Uh, and I think Apple being Apple is a great proxy for the future. Uh, so so I'm, a, I'm very optimistic. And I think with publishers, what we try to do all the time is make sure that we try new things and accept failure too, so that we can innovate and change fast enough. So we're always a step ahead of what's to come. Uh, and that way we drive growth. And uh, you know, I'm very excited about the open web. I devote my life to the open web. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic and excited. I love that narrative about you, Adam, and you can see going back to when we were talking about the IDF, that willingness to accept and willingness to try and fail. That seems to be a pretty important strand of your DNA. 
You have to. I mean, also things are changing so fast. You just have to be completely detached to not see it. It just, it changes with you or without you. The only question is, are you changing at the same pace or even faster? And, and you know, what's interesting, it always comes down to people. It's funny how, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're so advanced. We're so AI, you know, in the future, 2021, we're, we're so, you know, working from home, all those different things. But I can tell you eventually people do business with people and it's so important to build those relationships with people that you trust and give you a chance. And you should carry forward, you know, uh, that chance to other people that used to be you one day, one, you know, once. And uh, so I'm, you know, even 5,000 publishers and 13,000 advertisers, but there's always those who want to fail first and win first too, you know? So people, people is everything. That's absolutely true. So you've had quite a journey going from a couple hundred thousand in revenue, which back then was an enormous sum, nearly closing the doors several times and jumping ahead. And we got connected to a member of your board who's a longtime friend and one of the real leaders of our industry, Linda Clarizio. And Linda and others were with you for a pretty momentous occasion recently. Talk about that journey from, you know, maybe having to close the doors to becoming a public company. That's quite a journey. Yeah. You know, I never, it was never on my, never my, my plan. When I started Tabula, I just wanted to build a great company and work with great partners and clients. So everything was new to me all the time. You know, when we became a hundred people, that was the first time. When we got to a million dollars, that's the first time. A hundred million dollars, a billion dollars, half, you know, half a billion people a day interacting with us. Clicked on the table of 30 billion times last year. All, everything was new. Everything was a celebration. And then as we got bigger, we, we realized that there's a huge opportunity for us to be a public company. We were ready to be a public company financially and culturally. And it was an opportunity to bring in, you know, great new board members that have spent many years in private and public companies so we can be even better as we plan the future. I got to tell you, Matt, going public is, is, uh, is amazing. I mean, it's uh, for the day of it's, you know, you wake up and you just like, you go to the NASDAQ. My mom flew in. I, um, I was in, you know, it's, you know, if you've never done it, you never know how small that room is. It's like a small room with this button, which is really the bell. And then, so it was just a bunch of us, you know, it was very intimate. And then I was standing there. My team was on the, you know, we're all on the stage together. And I was looking at my mom, you know, she was looking at me back. You know, I never really stop and look back at what Tabula is more about. There's so much to do. And I'm always, you know, thinking about what's to come. But in that moment in time, I actually really stopped. So I had this seconds that felt years where it's just me, my mom, kind of like going back to how it all started. Me telling her that the world is changing. And I cried. Couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just ridiculous to me. It was ridiculous that I was in that moment. And I, you know, clicked the button. I was, you know, ringing the bell for the open web and for, for our publishers and partners who I thank so much for giving, you know, helping us and being with us and pushing through with us. Many of them have been with us for so long. And now, you know, we're on the other side. We're a public company. I just had my analyst day today because we acquired Connexity for $800 million a month ago. Everything is just, you know, it's such a rocket ship. You know, there's so much going on. I like it more than I don't because when you're a public company, uh, transparency is a big part of being public. Everybody knows everything. There's no more bullshit. You know, when you can make promises, when you're public, you can't, you have to deliver. So it's, I really like it because I get to interact with analysts and investors who are very smart and have a broader view than I do. 
and they ask us great questions. So I get to learn about Taboola through the eyes of other people in ways I didn't do before. And I really like it. So being out in public company, you know, I just want to, uh, on the one side, keep growing and building a great business. On the flip side, I want the culture to kind of never change uh, because I'm reminded that we were not first in this business, but we became the best. And that's only because we did it better than anyone else. So being the best in execution is, at the end of the day, your, your innovation. Nobody cares about your ideas, you know? Uh, ideas are a commodity. So, so I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about culture as a public company. Yeah, now listen, as you get bigger, that's the struggle is to keep that culture and keep those things. So talk about, you know, what's hot on your plate now. I know it's a different ball game and dealing with analysts and things like that and guidance. I hear you using all the right language that the CEO of a public company has to know and abide by. But give us a sense, what's hot on your plate right now? And if we were to do this a year from now, Adam, what do you think we would be talking about as the hottest issues in our industry? So I would say what's hot for me right now, first of all, nothing changed. I'm still, you know, same. I do, I do the same things. I spend time with my partners, my clients, you know, Taboola, different people at Taboola. And I try to make sure that we're close to, that we listen to the market and we know what the market needs. And at the end of the day, the only thing that truly matters to me is our own internal dashboard and our culture. Everything else gets corrected over time. I don't care. So I want to make sure that we're doing what we need to be doing. That's the most important. So to do that, I have to spend, and we have to spend time with the market and listen. So on that front, nothing changed. You know, I, I mentioned the culture as a public company. I'm trying to ask myself, you know, what is our culture now? What's our 2.0 version that is as strong, as transparent, as, you know, vivid as it always has been? Passionate, you know, pathetic, all the things I love. Why I come to work, if, if, you, if you can call this work, as a public company. So that's something that's really important to me. The, but but, but more, more relevant than you now is, one, the acquisition of Connexity. I think that e-commerce will be a humongous part of web. I just, you know, we just shared today with analysts that we think over the next few years, uh, four or five years, e-commerce will become a third of our publishers and publishers' revenue. We think e-commerce is going to be big, big, big. So that will take a lot of my attention as I get to know something new, work with the Connexity leadership team, all of them stay, work with new types of clients, all those things. I think that's going to be a big part of the next five years for all of us. E-commerce, payments, uh, trust, especially on the, on the back of the pandemic. We've been home. We are home. We're, we want to buy. We're buying online. It's better to buy on a trusted publisher than buy on a social feed. It's just a fact. Wired cutter and set spark more consideration than a social feed, in my opinion. And we've all been there before. You read an article and seen it, and you're like, oh, that's, that's cool. I'm, I'm going to consider buying that. So I think that's going to be, that's hot for me. I think it's going to be hot for all of our partners over the next many years, starting now. I think, you know, beyond that, we speak a lot about what else, what other markets will publishers get into? We call it recommend anything. So I think, you know, over time, we'll see games, apps, more video is coming to digital, more types of formats will make their way onto publishers and open web. Perhaps categories that are currently locked in other wall gardens will make their way into the open web and that will drive growth. So I, like I told you, I'm optimistic. And uh, in a year from now, I think we'll see more what we call anywhere, which is, again, I, I, I foresee a future starting now, starting a year from ago, where open web and publishers 
are being consumed anywhere on my mobile device, of course, on different apps on connected TVs, on you know, in my fridge. I think we'll see devices and services becoming one. So in five years from now, we're looking back, you and I will do this podcast again and say, what changed over the last five years? We will not believe that there used to be a time that a car was sold without the internet in it. That there used to be a time that your app on your TV wasn't smart to allow you to discover things you may like. That there was a time that your fridge didn't say, here's a recipe you should consume. It's Friday, Shabbat, cook it. Uh, we will be shocked. There was, there, there was a time like now. Uh, so I, I think that these things are changing fast. And will affect all of us, you and me, we make a living from the open web, you know, and consumer and user attention. So I think that's going to affect uh, our lives and our industry. What a great story. And to is right in the middle of a lot of that change and innovation. Well, Adam, this was such a pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad Linda connected us and suggested it and a, a truly great young mind. I mean, you're what, you're mid thirties. How old are you now? I just turned 40, man. I mean, I, I 40, turned 40. You look good. I became an, I became, thank you. I became an American. You know, I moved to New Jersey. I took the public. Everything is happening at the same time. Fantastic. Well, this is a great, great story and uh, loved having you. Thanks so much for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.